everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that workshops Stephen King's lesser-known novels to dig up some of the good stuff we may have missed. I'm super excited to be with you today and talk about a very little book that makes quite a big impact, and that's The Colorado Kid. So this one kind of snuck into the fold. I'm about to get started with Just After Sunset, our second short story collection here on the podcast. And I just finished swooning and adoring every single word inside of Joyland, which is a hard case crime book published in 2013. And I realized I had a copy of The Colorado Kid, which is also a hard case crime, and it's super little. It's the tiniest little book and I was like all right well we just got to do it we just got to do this uh, double hard case crime novel so I finished it yesterday and this little book has got so much in it to break down and discuss guys so I'm really excited to get started with that Um, firstly going as we get started it is a murder mystery and it's quite sophisticated it really is um, very philosophical for being so small. Um, This is one that is really hot and cold amongst Stephen King fans. I think if you read reviews on this book, it's very, very middle of the road with the scales sort of tipping towards the negative and we're going to talk about why that is. I think this is an amazing little book for discussion because it really brings out people's true reader personalities and sort of who we really are when it comes to books and when it comes to answers. But Colorado Kid was published in 2005. It's 187 pages and this is one of the first novels published by Hard Case Crime. And I have a 2019 copy that's actually has illustrations in it, which is super fun. And the early publisher, I believe he's the co-founder of Hard Case Crime, his name's Charles Ardai, has a really cool foreword at the beginning of the book uh, informing the reader of how the Colorado Kid came to be. And it's an awesome story and he basically says in 2004 he and a friend wanted to start this literal pulp fiction um, publishing initiative where they were going to resurrect the the sexy covers and the sort of campy, pulpy stories of cowboys and renegades and, you know, um, just <clears throat> those uh, running from Johnny Law. And so they, uh, Charles decided to just be really bold and brazen and write Stephen King and knew that maybe Stephen King would appreciate some of these retro initiatives because Stephen King is the coolest person ever. He owns his own radio station. He's a motorcyclist. He, you know, he's an adventurer through and through. He's, he's the coolest dude and man's man there could be. So Charles wrote to him and asked for a quote, just a blurb to maybe get things moving, maybe get a little bit of publicity toward the publishing initiative. And a couple months later, Stephen King's agent called him and said that Stephen King did not want to provide a quote or a blurb, but wanted to write a story and uh, said he had a story ready called The Colorado Kid. And Charles thought it was either a boxing story or about a a cowboy, but it's neither of those things at all. And uh, it happened to be super successful and it really put hard case crime on the map in terms of this super fun retro publishing experience. So I love the story of, of how it came to be and it looks like it ran Uh, out of print for a small chunk of time. So for such a little book, it made quite an impact because it did influence a show on the Sci-Fi Network from 2010 to 2015. A show called Haven is very loosely based on the Colorado Kid. Um, The town of Maine inside the novel is called Moose Lookit Island, which is fantastic. And they changed the name, switched up a couple things, and decided to call the town Haven. I didn't watch the show. I did see a couple YouTube helpful previews. It looks a little spooky, a little paranormal. 
but I do love the kind of seaside small town that really captures the spirit of uh, Moose Look at Island in the book. The main character, one of the main um, protagonists is Stephanie McCann and she is a journalist at the Weekly Islander, but in the show it looks like they sort of glossed it up and made Stephanie an Audrey, and instead of a journalist, she's an FBI agent, so um, that's Hollywood for you. Um, but I would love to know if you, any of you guys watch the show Haven, and you can let me know if it's a yay or a nay, or um, the main uh, sort of crime in this novel is, of course, a mysterious dead body found on the beach. And it looks like that may have been exhibited in season one of the show, but I, I don't know if it sort of carried over um, into the other seasons or... Yeah, so Haven looks pretty cool, but that was definitely influenced by this story. So as I kind of mentioned before, this is a murder mystery that, um, well, it's, uh, it's definitely polarizing and it's definitely uh, sort of bringing out the best and worst in every reader. So how we're going to go about breaking down this novel today is rather than doing the traditional sort of what's unique, what's working, I'm going to combine them a little bit. And then instead of heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, which is what we normally explore uh, in larger novels here on the podcast, we're just going to look at the three main characters because this is such a little book, guys. And so I think we do have the runway to kind of explore um, a lot of stuff inside. But um, going forward, before we sort of really dive in, I will have to talk about the ending. So if you would like to remain 100% spoiler free, uh, please save this podcast for a later time. The ending with a novel as short as this one, I just have to talk about it. There's no getting around it. I tried my best to maybe think of a way where I wouldn't have to talk about it and I could skirt around it, but the ending is really quite crucial to this novel and it's one of the reasons why I think it's middle of the road for many Stephen King fans, if not more so leaning toward the negative. So uh, for those who would like to keep this murder mystery uh, completely spoiler free, go ahead and save this podcast for a later time. I'm going to be talking about the ending in the next section. But before we head into that, I did want to give you a little summary of this story. So the Colorado Kid begins with Stephanie McCann. She's a 22-year-old journalism journalism major. Um, she's interning at the Weekly Islander, a very sleepy publication uh, on Moose Lookit Island, which is the an island off the coast of Maine. And she's been there for four months, and her bosses are. 90-year-old Vince Teague and 65-year-old Dave Bowie, who are delightful partners in crime uh, running this sweet little publication. And after four months, they've really taken a liking to her. They kind of are wanting to maybe keep her on board. And so one day after lunch, they decide to reveal a couple of town secrets and mysteries to her specifically the one of the Colorado Kid, which is a murder mystery that has had the town wondering for 25 years. So this was a very cool story uh, that really packs a punch in terms of, I didn't know it would be such a philosophical existential um you know, sort of fireside chat we've got here toward the end, but I uh, I definitely am really going to enjoy breaking this story down with you guys. So let's see if we have uh, anything else other than the pulpy cover, which uh, I will have pictures of on uh, some of the social media extensions of the podcast. Uh, this, this little story packs quite a punch. So we are going to dive into what's unique about the novel coming up, but if you don't want to know the ending or anything about it, go ahead and hang on a little bit longer. So thank you for joining me today, and let's get started.
So let's slip into what's unique about this story. There are quite a few things and I really enjoyed sort of stacking up all the evidence back to back because with so many little points I realized, okay, this this little story is definitely worth an investigation uh, for sure. I, I think most definitely for uh, seasoned Stephen King fans, but we're going to talk about maybe the, <laughs> the path of yay or nay toward the end here a little bit, but the first element that I feel is super unique, of course, is the length. This is only about 180 pages, give or take a few with the author's afterward and a couple other additional title pages and filler pages, so, so, so short. And then in addition to that length, the structure of this story is very much like a one if not two act play. So the first act, we have our three characters, Stephanie, Vince, and Dave, having lunch at the Grey Goal restaurant where they just had a Boston Globe reporter pay for their lunch and leave because he's not going to get the story he wants from them. Then the three travel back to Weekly Islander headquarters and they spend the rest of the afternoon there uh, and the rest of the story. So the entire sort of story is revealed at the Weekly Islander and the entire story takes place in without anybody leaving. And this is very kind of cool. It's very different, especially with more uh, seasoned Stephen King readers where his stories are fantastic adventures and there's so much action and jumping around and different locations. And so we mostly hear about Moose Look at Island in flashbacks. Uh, and so that's really the only sort of action we see is flashback, which is sort of interesting. Um, so during the entire time of the rest of the story, we have just dialogue. And that's why the second sort of point I have about it, this unique story is not only the dialogue, but colloquialism. So this entire story is dialogue. It's awesome. Um, I'm a huge fan of dialogue, so if you are, I think you'll really enjoy it. But the challenging aspect to this story is Stephen King really lays on the main accent and the regional colloquialism very, very strong. So he kind of unashamedly makes it a little challenging to digest at first. For example, um, many Stephen King readers have seen the the word aya or I, I I live in the West, forgive me, so I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's A-Y-U-H, and I guess it's ya, or I, I don't know if it's a little bit Canadian with the A at the front, or so please forgive my terrible pronunciation, but um, that's featured quite a bit in terms, and as well as gory, G-O-R-R-Y, and I'm guessing this is golly, I'm not sure, but there's not only those, you know, um, parts of speech, but so much regional colloquialism. And what's interesting is the character of Stephanie struggles with it and has a really tough time adjusting. And her coworkers, Vince and Dave, sort of give her an encouraging, you know, pep talk, like, it'll, you'll get it, don't worry, like, stay in the game, you'll figure it out. And I think there's a quote in the book where she said, the bubble in her ear just popped one day and she was able to understand people. So the thick main accent what is prevalent throughout all the dialogue and, um, for those of you who have read Stephen King pretty regularly, he's wonderful at sort of the country speak, sing song, very sort of rich in cliches and um, just jaunty, sweet, regular Joe speak. And that's very strong in this story. And it's delightful. There's a rhythm to it. There's uh, it's it's enjoyable, but the sort of uh, the main accent or the New Englander accent is pretty apparent. 
So I do recommend, even though it is such a short book and you may not want to waste your money on it, the audiobook really makes it a very enriching experience. Um, the narrator who they have, uh, I think his name is Jeff Durham, I might be incorrect on the last name, but he does a fantastic New England or Maine accent and it really brings out the seasoned sort of sweet, just old-timer um, character of not only Vince but Dave as well. So I did enjoy reading along because they're, you know, when I see A-Y-U-H, I pronounce it like a dum-dum and it doesn't sound at all what the Maine or New Englander accent sounds like. So at first I, in my mind, I was like, oh, just, just like put a Boston accent in your mind, like a really hard R. So just make that R an H and then you'll be on track. And it's like, I don't know. I don't think it, there's subtlety that's, I don't, you know, that's the thing. Some person from Maine might punch me in the face for calling it a Boston accent. So I was like, no, it's not that. Um, I want to, I want to do, I want to make sure that I'm really understanding what Mr. King is, is bringing to the table here. So even though it's a short little story, if you can rent the audiobook that accompanies it at your local library, I highly recommend because this whole novel, this entire 180 pages is dialogue, the whole thing. And so it's more enriching when you have the sounds of these really two old dudes um, who have lived on this tiny island their entire lives, worked at this newspaper publication their entire lives. Uh, I really enjoyed the richness of, of hearing their accent come through and uh, the different colloquialisms in that as well. So the shortness and the, the complete 100% dialogue accent um, colloquialism was really unique as well. And then my third point is a little bit a little bit of a <laughs> it's a little existential it's a little bit of sort of a philosophical you know fireside chat as I mentioned at the beginning but this novel as we start to get toward the end really is asking the reader about the nature of mystery and why mystery and why we read murder mysteries and our desire for clues and answers and understanding in general. And so I think that it's really unique because judging by this super pulpy cover, we've got like a foxy girl in a bathing suit. We've got some dead guy's gnarled hand on the cover. It reminds me of when I was a preteen, I was always wanting the uh, R.L. Stein books, but the teenage versions, not necessarily Goosebumps, but like the, um, gosh, I forget what they're called, but it, hopefully you guys can can visualize. They're usually teenagers and um, they were horror books and they had sex in them and crazy violent stuff. And I do remember one, I, I, God, I was way too young to read this book, but I must have been about 13, 14. And one of the guys was murdered with a roller skate and they choked, they like shoved it down his throat. Oh my God, it was so graphic and terrible. But you know, like these pulpy covers kind of rope you in. And yet in this book, we have a super sort of philosophical, existential, unexpected pothole toward the end where it's really asking the reader, like, what is it about humans and mystery that drives us all the hunt for understanding in general? And what's super awesome, what I sort of realized reading this book yesterday, is it was written in 2005, but reading it today is, it's very contemporary because I think about how popular investigative journaling uh, journalism has always been. I mean, we've got shows here in the States like Dateline and 2020 and um, all kinds of, of investigative journalism shows. And I love those shows, as many of us do, because we have it's all wrapped up for us in a three-part narrative. We've got the the bad event, we have the hunt, and then we have all we have the justice, right? So we 
everything's wrapped up in a bow for us. So they present the mystery, the viewer gets to kind of deduce and put on their Sherlock Holmes cap and use some logic and some reasoning and some, some armchair detective skills. And then it's revealed and then we get a prison sentence and everybody feels good and we can go to bed. And so what Stephen King does here is really take that away from you, but also he he holds that under a microscope and reminds the reader that is not what life is and we have to remember that. And uh, it's, it's basically kind of grabs the reader by the neck, albeit gently, but kind of says, listen, um, you, you want that little ice cream sundae with the cherry on top, but you know, unfortunately, that isn't how life works. But he says, I don't want you to forget the mystery because the mystery is what compels us all. So this is a mini, mini side tangent. As I said, this book, this book resurrected all kinds of deep thoughts, friends, which is why I want you all to read it. But my side theory, this is just really quick. I was thinking about, okay, so if we look at all of the um, podcasts out there, of which there are many fantastic ones in the true crime genre, true crime has blown up. If you guys remember a couple years ago with NPR's serial that came out, I think that one started at all. It was just like a domino effect and true crime just exploded and now we have armchair detectives literally solving cold cases and you know we're so into it we are so into it we as people all over the world are so into true crime and I was thinking about why that is and I I think I, I came up with two things my first thought is, in this modern day, I think solving a mystery or a puzzle makes us feel alive. I think many of us in the world are not feeling so alive in jobs that we hate or in relationships that A, don't exist, or B, don't provide a lot of nourishment to our hearts and souls. Um, we, we, we do a kind of a lot of day-to-day -day existing and when we problem solve we feel useful and we feel we have a purpose and we feel alive we do feel alive um, a little bit the way fear makes us feel alive which is my other tangent on why we read scary books but we're not going down that path and then my second my second thing uh, my point in this mini side tangent is why um why mystery and is i think we want justice. There's a deep human sense for justice. And I, I often wonder when I'm listening to a true crime podcast and I'm really freaked out to the point where I'm not sleeping, I'm having nightmares because I'm so involved in this story. And, I'm, and I ask myself, why are you doing this? Like, why are you putting your body and brain through this, this uh, terrible roller coaster of emotions? And there's a deep craving for justice and you hear these very grim, terrible details about family suffering and you want justice. And I think that's human. I think that, that, that it's a human need to want justice and to want things to be okay after bad things happen. So I could nerd out down that path for long, long, way too long. So I'm going to get us back on track here, but the nature of mystery really bubbles up here in this story um, and asks the reader some big questions. And so that's what I feel is really, really unique. So this brings me to my very fourth, uh, for my, my last and fourth point of what's unique in this novel, and that is the ending. So last chance for those of you who really just don't want anything to do with the ending, please stop your device now and save for a later time. Or you can skip to part three where I won't talk about the ending, uh, but just the characters. So last chance. Okay. All right, so my friends, the, the ending and the reason why I have to talk about it, we can't escape, we simply must, is because um, there is no ending. There is no ending. We do not find out what happens. Um, the Colorado Kid murder mystery remains unsolved. Uh, 
And this story ends on that note of Stephanie McCann, our journalist, you know, um, learning all the intricate, puzzling, amazing details of this mystery, and then asking Vince and Dave, well, what happens next? Like, what happened? And they simply sort of say, we don't know, and we've never known, and we haven't known for 25 years. And that's it, guys. And it's saddening because there's no payout. But then the afterword of Stephen King, which I'm actually going to read a portion of here in a second, sort of concludes that maybe, maybe it's not needed and maybe he was experimenting with something. So we don't find out. And that is unique, guys. That's, I don't, I have seen that in other novels. I have. It makes me just as mad as the next person, but once the shock and the reality of it, like, okay, I'm just not going to find out, you're able to sort of step back and breathe and take a look and, and maybe explore this story like we're doing now from all angles and maybe realize, you know, okay, but this was a pretty kick-ass mystery and I really did enjoy the process of trying to figure it out. So um, the ending is very unique and it's the reason why this book has mostly on uh, leaning toward poor reviews because it does unearth reader personality. I think there are some out there who have to know. Gotta know. They need it wrapped up at the end. They need to know that all of their pondering and wondering and puzzling that energy expended was rewarded somehow. But what Steve King says in this last sort of final note, he's like, you're not going to get that, and I'm going to explain why. So this is on page 186, where Steve King completely acknowledges that he has pissed people off, but he's embracing it. So I'm going to read this page, and uh, this is from Stephen King addressing all of us in this final moments of the story. I don't want to belabor the point, but before I leave you, I ask you to consider the fact that we live in a web of mystery and have simply gotten so used to the fact that we have crossed out the word and replaced it with one we like better, that one being reality. Where do we come from? Where were we before we were here? Don't know. Where are we going? Don't know. A lot of churches have what they assure us are the answers, but most of us have a sneaking suspicion all that might be a con job laid down to fill the collection plates. In the meantime, we're in a kind of compulsory dodgeball game as we free fall from wherever to ain't got a clue. Sometimes bombs go off and sometimes the planes land okay and sometimes the blood tests come back clean and sometimes the biopsies come back positive. Most times the bad telephone call doesn't come in the middle of the night, but sometimes it does. And either way, we know we're going to drive pedal to the metal into the mystery eventually. It's crazy to be able to live with that and stay sane, but it's also beautiful. I want to find out what I think, and what I found out writing The Colorado Kid was that maybe, I just say maybe, it's the beauty of the mystery that allows us to live sane as we pilot our fragile bodies through this demolition derby world. We always want to reach for the lights in the sky, and we always want to know where The Colorado Kid the world is full of Colorado kids, came from. Wanting might be better than knowing. I don't say that for sure, I only suggest it. But if you tell me I fell down on the job and didn't tell all of this story there was to tell, I say you're all wrong. On that, I am sure. Steve King, 2005. Okay, so he's pretty, uh, pretty deadlocked in that. And that's what I feel makes this story so unique, my friends. Um, in 2005, this was a brazen move, but I think now, reading this story 15 years later, it's much more digestible. When you look at the world we live in, and especially in terms of the armchair detective and true crime and cold cases, and I think we might be a little bit more comfortable with the unknown. And so uh, I do recommend sort of taking this really cool adventure uh, with this story. 
So that's about all I have for the unique portion. So let's uh, head in and explore some of our characters. So rather than heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, which is sort of my normal MO when I analyze these novels, I think I'm just going to bring the characters that we have in this story because there's four that I feel um, are really packing a lot of good detail in them, but there's no really defined lines on whether they fall into a hero-villain category. So I think I would call them all honorable mentions for sure. Um, so the, one of the main characters characters that I really enjoy and he tells the majority of the story is the editor of the Weekly Islander and that's Vince Teague and as I've mentioned in other episodes I love when Stephen King writes about old people he just makes them magical and so we don't have a super witty um you know, uh, cheeky uh, senior citizen with Vince, but he is just sweet and very uh, precious and has a lot of just time under his belt and kind of provides that vibe of like a wise old oak tree. So I'm just shocked that he's 90 years old and he still has not retired and he's still editing and managing the Weekly Islander. He's also, there's a great scene, pretty pretty techy. Um, Stephanie is on a notepad with, with pen and paper and he's powering up his Mac laptop and it's a really fun sort of uh, scene where he says, you know, shouldn't this be reversed to her? So he is twice a widower and has lived on Moose Locket his whole life. M Moose Lookit. <laughs> I'm getting confused. Moose Lookit, which is the most charming, puzzling little name. So Vince Teague is one of the main voices we hear throughout this story. He also is extremely prevalent in the investigation of the Colorado Kid. He's the one who uh, is basically who they call when something bad happens. So it's really old school. Given the fact that the mystery of the Colorado Kid occurred in 1980, they called the cops and then they also called Vince. So it's very interesting how plugged in he is with that. Uh, he was the one who was there at the crime scene and then he also was there at the autopsy and he also took the post-mortem photo. So he's really very heavily involved in the investigation. And then second we have Dave Bowie who's age 65 and he's the man managing editor of the Weekly Islander and he's compliments Vince extremely well because Dave has a memory like a steel trap. He just remembers everybody's last name and has just a really strong memory. And so that's sort of one of the characteristics that comes forth when he's talking about the story. He blurs together a little bit with Vince, and so when I talk about the what's not working portion, I'm definitely going to bring that up in greater detail, but Stephanie McCann is definitely our character who's in the most spotlight. She's 22 with these two super old dudes, and it's very much of a grandfather-granddaughter vibe. They are so nice to her, and they call her Steffi, which is precious, and they really encourage her and uh, make her time at the Weekly Islander a very pleasant experience. So Stephanie, I believe, I don't remember where it says she was coming from. I think it was maybe Midwest. And she did have the chance to intern somewhere in New Jersey, but she chose this tiny, tiny publication in um, off an island off the coast of Maine. And she, it, it's so tiny. And she runs a column called Arts and Things, and it's a very fluff piece. It's very, very small, and it's mostly happy where she's just kind of bopping around at arts and crafts fairs and bake sales and that's the big news around the town. So she's heading this column and has been there for four months and really at this point when we meet her in the story she's really sort of 
falling in love with island life a little bit and with the flow of her life. It took her a while to feel comfortable understanding people's accents. She was really intimidated, very scared, very unsure of herself. But what's nice about Stephanie is she is really exuding this sort of lovely intern vibe where she just wants to learn and I think that Vince and Dave really see talent in her even though she has a puff piece all the time and like a puffy article that's not probably what she majored in. She doesn't complain and she does it with gusto and she doesn't um you know, internally want something different. She knows she has to pay her dues and she's understands that this is sort of how you get your foot in the door. So the entire rest of the book, what I like is not only are we learning about this very intricate murder mystery, which I'm going to talk about here more in a little bit, but we are seeing Vince and Dave sort of groom her within the story to see how talented she is in terms of sleuthing and being a, an investigative reporter, being a little bit of a detective. So with various times, almost constantly throughout the story, they'll pause for a second and say, what do you think about that? Or what would you have done, Steffi? Or what? where do you think our next move would be? Or what do you think... What, who would you call next? And so they ask her these questions and she seems to pass with flying colors. She's super smart, really talented. And uh, I, I love the fact that she has this really nice intern experience. A character that I'd like to bring up in, a, in conjunction with the positive intern experience is someone who we don't actually physically meet in the story. We only hear of him in flashback, but he is, his name is Paul Devane, and he sort of makes a big impact in this little story because he is another intern on Moose Look It, but in 1980, and he is interning with the police force as a forensic student. And unfortunately, he is, he had a terrible intern experience. And so I feel Paul is kind of a foil for Stephanie's experience because Stephanie has this stellar, wonderful, two lovely grandfather types who have done nothing but, you know, plant good things for her and encourage her and they're kind and patient and she's just had the best couple four months so good in fact she actually wants to stay on the island and she wants to stay at the weekly islander and she's hoping that vince and dave will keep her so there's a lot of hope and a lot of um positivity surrounding those three but yet we have paul which is a foil because he gets the exact opposite and you really as the reader feel so bad because he's incredibly talented and has a lot to offer being a forensic student but he works for two jerk cops named oceani and martin or i forget one of them starts with an m please forgive me and they just treat him like a gopher to go get pastries and coffee and do all the menial jobs and if he's even allowed to be at the crime scene he's just has to shoo away pedestrians who are loitering around and he maybe gets to assist with like putting tape around the thing so he had the worst three months and didn't feel that his talents were useful and or appreciated and he was just this invisible sort of lapdog to them and Vince and Dave really talk about what a shame that was because Paul ends up changing his major and going into the law rather than into forensics or police work so but Paul is a really cool character who we only hear about in flashbacks in 1980 but he is pretty crucial to the investigation taking a really cool turn which was great to see. So I really enjoyed reading about Paul and then our fourth character of course is the Colorado Kid and the Colorado Kid is a man in his 40s named James Cogan. We later find out he's age 42 and he is a victim on the beach of Moose Look Island. He's discovered by two teenagers jogging for the track team and he's dead and uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the dead, uh, his body and 
We find out later on in the novel he was in advertising and there's so, so much mystery because he's from Boulder, Colorado and he flew to Maine on the same day he died. And so I don't want to give away too, too much because I want you guys to enjoy the mystery. I'll talk about a couple strong elements in the next portion, but not too, too much because it is worth the, it's, it's the mystery is, is best kept secret for sure. But he is someone who we don't find out a lot about, but there's a lot of mystery there that he is so blank canvas and they do eliminate a lot of possibilities, but you as the reader taking a look at it without injecting the paranormal, um, which I don't feel is necessary in this novel. I think that some do. Some feel, oh, well, it's impossible. It's actually impossible. That's where we have to inject the, the you know, the impossible, so to, so to speak, um, in terms of, uh, okay, well then it must be fairies or ghosts or monsters or a time portal or something. But I, I actually feel that might not be needed. And so with James Cogan, he is very, very, he's someone who you'll definitely be thinking about after this story is over because it's such a mystery as to who he was and why he was there, uh, especially when you find out he was married and he did have a six month old baby. So there were just these things about this person who seemed in a very happy season in his life and to end up dead on a beach completely not in his, in his home state um, is pretty interesting. The one element I'll mention that is just super cool is there's an, there's a pack of cigarettes, but you find out that James doesn't smoke. So it's so good, guys. So those are the four characters that are the most prevalent. I really, really enjoy that we have such a mixed bag of youth and age. Uh, Vince is definitely at the tail end of life, but still really spry. He's a very sort of string bean of a guy, and then Dave, on the other hand, is a little plump. And so um, there's a lot of just lovely grandfather um, sage advice, but uh, passed to Stephanie. But what's nice is that they even mention how tragic it was that the character of Paul received such poor treatment and how, how terrible it is when someone just wants to learn and doesn't get the chance to do that. So uh, for, for those of you who are young, I think reading this book is, is encouraging and I hope you all have a wonderful, pleasant intern experience because it's a 50-50 roll of the dice that uh, you might not and I, I hope you all do. But uh, let's go ahead and get into a little bit of my final thoughts on this adventure and uh, what's really working and what might not be working. So to conclude our thoughts on the Colorado Kid, I did want to kind of sandwich together the my concluding thoughts on whether or not I feel this book is worth the trek, um, as well as what, what I enjoyed and what I feel is working well in it. So if you're not someone who's read a significant amount of Stephen King, or if you have, what I really enjoy about this story is how he really unearths that old school sort of Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes mystery and puts the objects surrounding the mystery and the body in like this high definition screen and it's so fun. So some of these uh, objects I did want to mention a couple of my favorites because as I mentioned in episode 6 with Lisey's story, sometimes the objects in a story when they're referred to with such concrete necessity, um, they kind of take on this floating importance, uh, much like an item in a video game where you just start running towards it and you grab it and assimilate it into your yourself or your path because that's what I feel the objects are kind of doing here. They're super high def because uh, of 
of the mystery they're creating in your mind and how you're trying to unravel what's going on. So some of my favorites that we get, I mentioned a little bit in the last one, we do have a pack of cigarettes with a tax stamp. And I don't know much about cigarettes, but in uh, learning about this pack of cigarettes in 1980 was pretty cool and very, very crucial to the investigation. Um, what was interesting is only one of the cigarettes was smoked, and then we found out that our victim was a non-smoker. So it just leads down so many different paths of did he smoke one? Was it somebody else? Did the pack even belong to him? Um, but the tax stamp on the bottom does say the state of origin where he purchased it from, which was why they discovered that the victim was not from Maine, but from Colorado, which was cool. Um, we have a Russian coin worth 10 rubles that was found in the pocket of the Colorado kid. We have $17 in cash, um, a 10, a 5, and two ones. We have a matchbox, uh, matchbook, pardon me, matchbook with only one used. We have a pack of cinnamon gum with only one stick remaining. Uh, there's also a greasy spot in the hand of the victim. I believe his right hand has beach sand, but it has uh, grease from some sort of meat or what the hypothesis is, is that he was eating something greasy. So I, I don't want to reveal too much more, but these elements are so cool, guys. And I think when they're presented to you inside of the narrative, they're so great. And if you enjoy mystery novels or murder mysteries, I highly recommend giving this one a chance just because connecting the dots are really fun and it's a very old school experience, which is why I think that it totally works for hard case crime. I, I really enjoy that um, these books were sort of meant to be uh, bought for the price of a movie ticket, the same kind of price. Super cheap little books that you're supposed to bend and stick in your back pocket and read while you're waiting for your laundry to finish up in that sort of 50s, 60s retro uh, vibe. And so that that's working incredibly well in the old school mystery aspect of it where it's just these two really old newspaper guys recalling these vivid details that they've mulled over in their minds decade after decade and so you as the reader really get to hold on to them and grab them and, and take a look at them with your own mental microscope and it's great. So I did enjoy the way that Mr. King set up this mystery and how he uses these objects in a really clever way. So that I feel is really working for me. Um, what is not working for me is, I kind of mentioned it in our last section, but Mr. Dave Bowie, he is 65 and he's the managing editor of the Weekly Islander and there are a few moments where I just wish we would have had a little bit more character for Dave. Um, we know physically how he's different from Vince, but as they were telling this story, they alternate uh, telling the story. It's mostly Vince who's telling it, but there are times that it was Dave and I had no idea because I think he kind of really blurs with Vince a little bit. With Vince being 90 and he's had two wives who, you know, he's both outlived them, you know, we have a little bit more of the solid character details, whereas with Dave, he just seems very much content in the shadow of Vince, sort of the uh, honoring your elders, so to speak. But I don't get a lot of character info that separates him from Vince enough. I think if there could have been some more interesting speech colloquialisms that only Dave uses or something unique. Um, there are some moments when they eat some snacks at the Weekly Islander headquarters. They have some muffins, a squash muffin, and cans of coke. And um, Dave is told to be someone who's putting on weight so he likes food and so I, I feel that could have been explored or something where his character would have come to life a tiny bit more mostly because it's just the three of them I think Stephanie she's so different she's decades younger than them she's female you know she's the sort of granddaughter role in all of this but Dave and Vince are super close in age and 
profession and they're almost like mirror images of each other and I wish that wouldn't have been so. Um, so I would have wanted a little bit more character discernment or just more details that separated Vince from Dave. I think that would have helped a little bit more because they're both wonderful. I love when Stephen King writes senior citizens. They are tremendously funny and charming and they both have the main accent and all the colloquialisms and all the regional dialect is there in spades. But there were times I'm like, is this Dave or is it Vince? Because I have no idea. I just think it's Vince the whole time. And it mostly is, but the parts when Dave jumped in, I, I wanted more discernment on that. So the big the big thing with this little novel guys, the ending is is super polarizing and so I've thought about it. Granted, I did only read the story less than 24 hours ago, but in in that time, I I do have a little bit of peace with it. And so I'm I'm about I'm leaning towards the ending working. I'm about 70/30. Um, I'm leaning towards it working only because the length of this story is short enough to not make it super emotional in the going off the cliff with not receiving an answer. So this did remind me of another mystery novel I read a few years ago. Um, tiny spoiler re regarding this novel I'm about to mention, but I'll do my best to keep it delicate. But um, there's an Irish author, Tana French, who's really fantastic, and she does awesome Irish police procedural novels. So if you really enjoy a police procedural, she is fantastic. And her stories mostly revolve around the detectives and the entire process from discovering the body to everything in between. It's a great ride. In one of her first novels, I think it may have been the first one, In the Woods, the main detective had a childhood traumatic event where friends of his wandered into the woods. I want to say they're about 10 and under and three of them disappeared and were never found again. And it's an awesome story. There's a lot of character development, a lot of mystery, so many questions and it does have a similar conclusion to The Colorado Kid. However, that story was twice the length of Colorado Kid, and so when that one hit, I was mad. <laughs> I was pretty emotional about it because I feel the length of and time, and there's something about it where the longer you stretch out a journey, the more you want the ending to sort of validate and rectify your time spent or your journey or your emotional involvement. But I think here in Colorado Kid, because it's so short, it's easier to let go of whatever emotional disappointment you might have. I think it would have been compelling if we would have got the answer, but the fact that it is a cliffhanger and Stephen King is wholeheartedly accepting the anger from he's totally fine with it and when I look at maybe the reason why he did it and uh, I, I'm satisfied, I am, and it's slightly disappointing only because once the chess pieces are on the board it's fantastic to be a part of. It's cool and the flashbacks are great and our minds are just active and alive and plugging away and trying to problem solve and theorizing and so you're really in this awesome mental space as a reader but when the ending arrives as it does um, because it's short I think that it doesn't make for such an emotional throw the book across the room however this is totally dependent on personality I think that I'm a little bit more uh, open-minded with with something like this. However, some Stephen King fans or some book readers in general are not, are not. You know, there's a reason why we have shows like Dateline in 2020 here in the States where it, for the most part, rarely, rarely do you get an ambiguous ending or do you get something that's, you know, we don't know and we'll never know and sort of the cold case thing. Um, typically, they'll do a follow-up show a year later and so all of your questions are answered and you feel a sense of justice and you hear the bars clang and they've caught the bad guy for the most part and there's, there's an ease and a peace, but we don't have peace in this. We have 
two old guys who have gone through life not knowing and are gonna head to their graves not knowing potentially and I think that Steve wants you to focus on that and focus on the fact that millions of people all over the world have that and uh, it's the mystery that maybe keeps us alive and keeps us sane as he says so uh, I am on the 70-30. 70% of me is like, okay, I'm alright, I get it, it's okay. And then 30% is like, damn it, just damn it. Um, <laughs> like, what? Oh, man. Um, so, but maybe, maybe here in a little bit it'll be 80-20 and then 90-10. And then I think I'll 100% in time in the future, I will hopefully be uh, at peace and really view this story as a fun little murder mystery that brings up a lot of classic mystery motifs from some of the greats out there, channels it in this really fun pulp fiction package that's, you know, this retro paperback book experience, but then there's this big existential pothole about the nature of mystery and why humans always need the what they mention in the book is the feature of the beginning middle end like we need it we want it we crave it we need that peace in our lives and he's kind of like a little pebble in our shoe this story um steve king puts it there and he's content to put it there and say this is gonna annoy you but you're gonna be okay because it'll get you to think about it in a different way which is pretty cool so I would not really recommend this story for first-time Stephen King readers. Um, I also don't know if maybe you should reveal the ending to people. Um, I think it would be based on their personality type. If you know somebody is just that, I don't know if maybe type A is associated with needing to know things, but if you know your friends are going to be really mad with not having answers or not being in control of something, um, and yeah, maybe hold off on this one and maybe give it to the friend who's a little bit more experimental or open-minded or patient and say, maybe like really focus on the dialogue in this book or look at how he transitions um, in the story or XYZ. But uh, I would say it just depends on your personality. I think that I'm happy I read this story. I think it's an experimental little spoonful of something very different. Super unique because it is a hard case crime. And I think back in the 50s or 60s, he would have received 10,001, e um, not emails, but handwritten letters with angry people about, I need to know the mystery. And he, he talks about that. He says, I'm ready for your emails. I don't care. Um, this is how the story ends. And this is what I want to say with the bigger question. And that's pretty cool. I love that it's a little story that packs a big, big, uh, amount of, of stuff, of, uh, brain stuff, of, uh, emotional stuff, but the mystery is wonderful. So, I would say if you have an afternoon where maybe you are at the laundromat or you're on a picnic, um, look at the fantastic regional dialect in this story. Look at the clues. Enjoy the clues. Enjoy the mystery. Um, and maybe we can have a lot more fun theorizing ourselves what we feel may have happened. And you never know, there are several constant readers out there who are so well-versed in the loopholes, the connections, the dark tower portals, you know, all of these elements to where maybe the supernatural could have been involved and I would love to hear about it. I would love to hear any of your theories with what you feel may have happened to the Colorado kid. In the Stephen King universe, there's many, many rabbit holes and uh, dimensions and all kinds of fantastically crazy stuff. So please write in to underratedsk at gmail and let me know your thoughts on this little puzzle of a story. And I would love to hear from you. I would love to break it down further with you and hear about what you thought. And if the ending really is something to be angry about, or if it's something that in time we could just find peace with. So that's basically all I have for the Colorado kids 
did. It's short and sweet, but really asks a lot of big questions, and that's pretty cool. So I highly recommend if you are a Stephen King fan already, give it a try, be patient, examine what's there, and don't get pissed off because there's no payout. Look at the journey, look at the mystery, um, admire the parts that are in the sunlight and uh, extra sparkly, and then uh, we can talk about the ones that maybe fall a little flat, but it's over so fast, it's, it's just poof. Um, so we've got some great ideas and brainstorming in this little story, and as Stephen King is most well known for having these absolute toe breakers of books being in the thousand plus pages, something like this is always exciting to dive into. So. I super appreciate you guys for hanging with me. Our next adventure is going to be with another short story collection just after sunset, so I'm going to be working on that for you. But as far as I know, there's only two hard case crime novels published, but if there are any others, please let me know as I'd love to dive in. Uh, I'm also going to be talking about here uh, the Castle Rock te television show. I didn't spend too much time on that as I wanted to, so I do have some thoughts. And we may have a little bit of Catharsis Corner down the road because I really want somebody to make Joyland into a movie, my friends. Oh my goodness, it's so good. It's so good. So um, I highly recommend reading Joyland if you haven't. And then um, right after, if you want to stay in the hard case crime vein, go ahead and pick up The Colorado Kid. So thank you guys so much for listening. I would love to hear from you and I hope everyone is well and safe. Take care. <laughs>